It's Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining us here at the Chinatown Library. Uh, my name is Ashley Rayner. I'm a branch manager at Greater Grand Crossing uh, at 73rd in South Chicago, but I'm also a huge nerd. And uh, I'm, I just love Afrofuturism, and so when I was asked to help out with this, I was super excited because this is something I could talk about for hours. Um, with me, I have two guests that I invited, begged to come, and I'll let them introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Matt Peters. I am the president of the Chicago Nerd Social Club, where we uh, invite people to come to certain events uh, throughout the year like this. We have a, an event on, uh, in, I'm sorry, in March called uh, Pi Day, of course, you know, hence 3.14, all that. Yep. Uh, that's going to be at Open Book Chicago. Uh, also, I am one of the hosts of Lex and Matt's Excellent Adventure uh, podcast that we're still trying to figure out what it's about on the 50th episode. But it's a lot of fun. <laughs> I am Terry Gant of the Southside Gants, uh, owner of Third Coast Comics at 6443 North Sheridan Road in Rogers Park. Um, I've been a black comic book retailer for about 15 years. At one point, I was the only black comic shop, comic book retailer in the entire country. I'm now one of a handful. I'm the only one in the Midwest. I am also the host of, or co-host of Stakes is High, the Black Nerd Podcast. I guess we can start out a little bit, and I, I can start with this, but uh, what does the term Afrofuturism mean to you? And so, uh, to me, it means the idea that black people from the diaspora, not just uh, from America, will be in the future. Like, it's kind of planting our flag in the sand or in the moon rocks or whatever. This is what we're going to exist. We're going to be here. What is that going to look like? What is that going to do? And uh, how will it look? How will it feel? How will it sound? Uh, just kind of exploring those ideas. Uh, it's always interesting to me because Afrofuturism seems to mean something a little bit different to everybody. To me, it's a, a way of celebrating black culture uh, without looking back. Because, you know, of course, it's, it's no coincidence that we're having this panel today within Black History Month. You know, we take a month every year to celebrate black history. We're living the black present every day of our lives. But the black future isn't always something that's celebrated in culture. So when we see something like that, when I see something like that, I get excited. So that's what uh, Afrofuturism is to me. Uh, in my thinking about Afrofuturism, I think it does specifically require that you look back. Um, only because like every, every bit of science fiction that we've ever seen up until this point involves taking like an American past and present and like projecting that into the future. But like in Afrofuturism, the idea, especially when you're considering that it's about the diaspora, right? It's, it's, it is taking African culture, it's taking black culture. It is taking the things that like black people in America who are, have always been creators and inventors and, 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 and futurists in terms of like creating a culture that is, is often borrowed from and then projecting that to the future. So you, you don't just, get uh, a future in which Africans and black people are in space, like on a spaceship exploring other planets. You don't get that without like the concepts and imagination that comes out of jazz, that comes out of Ooh. like Prague, that comes out of like any other form of art or the sciences. Different, it's different ways of looking at all these things and then blending them together to get a, a, a future that is brown, right? With a, with a perspective that is brown, whether it be you know five years from now or 100 years from now or 500 years from now. Right, so I think that it is. It, it always seems to every time I see something I consider to be futuristic, it always seems to also include uh, a bit of it's bringing the culture with you. Right? Mm. So like you can't like you, I don't think you can drop the past out. I think that there's you know it ain't necessarily got to be like you know uh, uh, you know like a, a wooden spaceships, right? Like it's not that. <laughs> <laughs> so much as it's just <clears throat> taking the best of the culture 
and then projecting it forward. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's it's so funny <laughs> because when we look at the uh, the futurist movement uh, yeah. from the twenties and everything, it's it's so usually rooted in uh, European culture. Yeah. You know, we get all those ideals and all those uh, processes, but um, it seems like Afrofuturism is like, no, no, we were here too. Um, and we would like to bring our past to the present as well. Right. Which is hilarious because when it's the we were here too part, a lot of times it is there's there's someone doing something sci-fi and the only thing, if they want to do something that's even remotely Afrofuturistic, they decide to go to the pyramids and not a pyramid, it's a spaceship. And then it's you have a Stargate TV show and then that's <laughs> someone saying, oh look, we considered you guys. Look at that. You got pyramids in space. You know, like that's kind of what tends to happen. <laughs> yeah. Well, then there's like the, the ancient aliens thing, right? Where it's like, oh, like definitely black people couldn't have done all this stuff. Oh, no. like, it definitely was aliens. Like, like black people would never. And it's like, no, nope. actually, we were. Couldn't have possibly first. been that good with the science and the math and like the slide rules and the angles and nope. nope. I, uh, the wheel. Yeah. No. I was getting, I get frustrated because, uh, you know, a lot of times when I was learning history, it was very much like Eurocentric. And I look back now and I'm learning these things that I didn't know when I was a kid. I'm like, I, I would have liked history if there were black people in it. Like, I would have enjoyed seeing these things and not just seeing, uh, you know, the kind of normal things that we see during Black History Month, which is important, but, you know, there's more perspectives yeah. to being black than just, uh, you know, Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King. Um, let's see, I had like, of course you guys said a whole bunch of really interesting things and I had thoughts about them. So what, um, I guess, if we're talking about comics, like what are some of the comics that you're reading right now that really kind of speak to this Afrofuturistic bent? Like are there any that, you're, that, that you really enjoy? Anything that you're like, oh, you know, I wish this was better? Well, oh, <laughs> I want to talk about that a little bit. I want to talk about um, something that I started with Terry because I, I do... Uh, shop at Third Coast Comics is my primary comic shop. Uh, it was the, the Summer of Black Comics Challenge. Yeah. And so this is where uh, I basically communicated to Terry just like, look, throughout the entire summer, I think it was like two years ago, yeah. cool. we're going to just pull every black comic on the shelf for me. Right. Whether it be a black creator or okay. a primary black character, okay. I want to read about it. Yes. And I had maybe three books in the box every week or so. Yeah, easily. Easily, you know, and it's gotten better. Obviously, since uh, you know the success of Black Panther yeah. and everything, it's gotten a little bit better. We've gotten the Black Panther spinoffs, you know, uh, with the Netflix shows. Uh, Luke Cage came back into the limelight, so we got a little bit of that. The the downside to reading about most of these uh, comics that star black characters is that they have just such a very short shelf life, mm. uh, either because they're not really marketing them as much as the more mainstream characters, uh, or people just kind of give up on them halfway through. People like readers? Uh, readers, okay. yeah. So you look at um, something like Ironheart, which is an excellent book. Yeah. Uh, you know, when the first few issues were coming out, people were celebrating it, talking about, oh yeah, it's from one of Chicago's best writers. Uh, you know, I'm sorry. E-viewing. E-viewing, yes. Yeah. And you should check this out. Book's still going on, but people aren't really hyped about it as much as they were anymore, unfortunately. It's still great. And I'm on Netflix. I'm sorry? I believe Netflix. Yes, yes. It's a, Netflix has ruined the, the attention span of the average like graphic novel comic book reader. Right? By giving you a TV show about anything that they can give you a TV show about, dropping an entire season on you in one day, yeah. they've, made, they've now raised an entire generation of media consumers who believe that in order to enjoy something, I have to be able to get it all in one sitting. Mm-hmm. Comic book reading and comic book collecting, particularly if you want actual meat, is something that your brain used to be uh, uh, trained to wait 
or the next installment of serialized. Like television used to be serialized, right? right? Comic books are serialized. So the format of comics is monthly. The reason people drop a title has less to do with the quality of the title than the idea that their brains can't handle waiting 30 days for the next installment of that thing. So what starts happening is people say, oh, I love Ironheart, I love the concept, I'm glad that there's a, a, a young black chick from Chicago who's basically like, a, like Tony Stark is pulling her along and wants her to basically like be the heir apparent to like everything that he's done because she's already out doing it. That is a great idea and people were responding to it positively until they found out they had to come back next month for issue number two. You're right. You're right about that. It's the short attention span. I totally agree with that. So you know what I think is the solution here? We need another milestone. Now, fortunately, we need another Dwayne McDuffie for that to really happen. And, you know, may he rest in peace. Um, but Milestone Comics, we had new say, issues every like single. Yes. So this was um, an all-black comic line. Uh, it was yeah. like a, a, what was it, a, an imprint of DC Comics. Well, it, yeah, because DC agreed to be its publisher. Yes. It existed pre-DC, and then DC were the ones that were going to go ahead and put the bill to get it out in the comic shops. So this is back in the 90s. Uh, characters that you may know from uh, other animated shows now, like Icon and, and, and Static, uh, and of course uh, Hardware, yeah. which uh, is heavily borrowed from now uh, for the Iron Man books, <laughs> which is amazing. You know, he was doing things back in the '90s, like the uh, the nanotechnology that we saw in Avengers Endgame that Tony Stark was using. That was all hardware, and this is like '97, '98. Right. Wow. So all that stuff is, is was already there. They predicted that. So you think that like having a black-owned publisher would somehow help with the serialization? Or? Yeah, I, I, mean, I, I don't. But the only reason I don't think that this is the issue is because it's all, it all comes down to being able to get your product into the hands of more people quickly. So if, if a black-owned comic book company were created and they were going to do, let's say, Afrofuturism in comics or whatever, the next step would have to be to get people who are not brown to actually buy the product. Right. right. If every black comic book reader in the country actually bought every black comic book character in the country, you'd end up canceled, right? Because there just aren't enough brown people out there right. buying the actual product. So what you have to do is you got to get it on screens. You have to get it on, onto something with a controller. You have to you have to put it in print. You have to put it on the sides of buses. You have to do all these different things to get it in front of more people, right? And they count that as your success because even if people who are reading Ironheart were buying it monthly, mm -hmm. you're still going to end up with about like, you know, 80,000, uh, 60,000 sales or so, right, a month. And then someone is going to say, but it's not 300,000 in sales. Right. And mm -hmm. therefore we have to chop it. But do comics even do that much anymore? Like that high of a number? Like I don't, I know that like individual. Okay. Yeah, like, well, a success these days in comics is any comic book that sells, let's say over 100,000 copies. Okay, that's what I was. It's considered to be a success. Okay. Um, when, if your comic book company is um, a, a little, if it's hurting a bit, you might chop anything that sells below 30,000, sure. okay. 24,000, something like that. Like at that point, you know you're selling to a hardcore fan base, but 25,000 readers is a, is a drop in the bucket. And it's, it's, it's sort of static, it's like a baseline for most things published these days, right? So if you know you're at 25,000 and you're at issue number 18, you're going to be at less than 25,000 by issue 30, right? You're never going to go back to issue number one right. sales. So right. you kind of need Ironheart to have a number one every six months. Which, unfortunately, Marvel does tend to do. Yes, that's the Marvel Comics <laughs> method, is to relaunch constantly to, to keep the numbers up. But that isn't even, that's not even saying they're trying to support something like, let's say, that is Afrofuturistic, right? right? So now in comics, I think we have a lot of things that qualify that have been published. So yeah. if you're look, going to the comic shop and you want five new things, you're not going to find five new things. But if you want 12 things, 
they're out there, right? Yeah. And like on my list, I've got so Black Panther, yes, for sure, because the the last two or three volumes of the current time has the coach run is called like the Intergalactic Empire of Wakanda, right? So it is exactly what you're looking for. Yeah. It is Black Panther in space. It is Wakanda in space, right? There's a little bit of there's a if you were reading it before this point, there's a bit of a jarring like how the hell did they get the space. Right? They're, they just yada yada over that. You'll yeah. find out three volumes down the road. Yeah. But it, it happens. They're there. Um, far Sector? Far Sector. Uh, far Sector is I don't think by M.K. Jemison. Okay. Oh, 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 this is the, the Green Lantern. Green Lantern. It's, it's yes. Green Lantern. Kind of. okay. So let me interrupt you. M.K. Jemison <coughs> has won the, her last, her books in the fifth season series have won three Hugos mm-hmm. in a row, which no one has done male, female, black, white. Anything. Mm-hmm. So she's an amazing writer. I'll yeah. also throw in if you haven't listened to her acceptance speech oh, yeah. at the Hugos, that is a must watch because the amount of shade she throws, rightly so, is just amazing. Yeah. 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 Uh, so it's, it's a Green Lantern comment about a woman who's a Green Lantern, but she is a Green Lantern who has been assigned, all the Green Lanterns in DC Comics are assigned to a particular area that they patrol, right? So she's been assigned to patrol an area that they don't even give a number to. It's Ooh. so far away, it's so remote, right? They didn't even have a designation, she's just out there. But the beauty of it is, it's a utopian society where she's also got to be the, the, the guardian for that has not had a murder in 500 years, until there is one, mm. right? And now, it is, it's a cool concept of like taking culture and removing it so far from like regular Earth culture, and it still needs a cop. Right, but it's got this this check for a cop, and yeah. it, it's it's a cool book. Okay, um, it's like issue three, um, Outer Darkness, which is kind of it's a sci-fi concept. Okay, um, in which in its design you can see like kind of African influence and like this design of its technologies and things like this and its characters. Um, Moon Girl Devil Dinosaur is was a long-running Marvel comic that is done now, but it's um, the main character is Lunella Lafayette, I think is the name of the character. Yes, um, she's a young black girl. Who is the smartest Reed Richards, if not smarter? Smarter. Who basically? I looked at a list today. She's smart. There's, she's, there's three black people on there. T'Challa. I want to say it was Shuri. No, no, Riri. And then um, Lunella's a top. Uh-huh. And then so she, what she basically does though is really super cute. Like she's, she makes these gadgets and things out of like kind of regular objects. Ooh. So she's, she's creating super technology, but it end up looking like you know a boxing glove on a on a. Yeah. You know, but it'd be really, really cool thing. She's got like a, a rapport with a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Um, you you really like buried it. the lead. There. Yeah. Wait a minute. Just, <laughs> just the name the of the door. book is Moon Girl and Double Dinosaur. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it, it does. It kind of did, but like, yeah, the Double Dinosaur is is an important part of it. It's a full size T Rex. Um, I consider Sam Wilson's Captain America. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Because a lot of times we we'll talk about Afrofuturism in terms of taking the culture and moving it into the future, but some aspect of this has to be, in the superhero universe specifically, how do people who are adopting mantles deal with that mm-hmm. fact that this is a new step, a, a change for them? And Sam Wilson, black, uh, black man America, his, uh, his Captain America is, <laughs> his Captain America is all about him, how he views America and his role in it, mm-hmm. right? Oh, wow. As taking on the mantle of Captain America while also still being the Falcon. Like he still keeps the wings and all that stuff, right? And his his view isn't the worldview of Steve Rogers, which is very important, right? It is he is recognizing he is in a different place in time right. now that he is Captain America, and it's I think it's an important thing to consider that like for him he's thinking about his entire history up until this point, and and, and it's a lot of a lot of it is about how the world relates to him when he becomes Captain America, right? right. Yeah. How it changes. Yeah. Okay. Now I'm curious, Terry, did, did 
the um, subscribers of Captain America, did they react well to that changeover? Did they continue reading the book as it went on? With so on, it, my story's a little weird because I'm on a college campus and the things that like those kids sort of gravitate to is a little different anyway, okay. right? Captain America is not one that for my shop has always had strong sales for the most part, except for uh, when Tiny Hesse Coats came on, then the right. Black Panther readers, a lot of them came on to, to read Captain America, right? Okay. Uh, the problem with, again, the, the, the Netflixing and Marvel Cinematic University of America is a lot of people feel very connected to Tony Stark and Captain America in culture. They don't feel connected to them if they have to read them. Yeah. You have to remind them these characters exist and have existed for 60 years, 80 years in comics, right? Like you have to tell them that. Right. And then they, then they look at that and they go, mm, not the same thing. They're, they don't, they're not into Captain America. They're into Chris Evans. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I throw one more um, superhero in there as well. The, the recent, uh, And this is almost like a reverse of what you're talking about. It, it's probably the exception that proves the rule. The Raising Dion uh, show that oh, came yeah. on Netflix. Uh, amazingly started as a short, then it became a comic book. Then it became the Netflix series, yeah. and people really seem to react well to that. Uh, so, Raising Dion is about a little boy who has superpowers, and his single mom has to like raise him and like help him deal with these powers and like how to explore right. them and things like that. Right, primarily telekinetic. So okay. if our little yeah. friend Regina King and his dinosaurs floats, that would be a is good Regina example. King in it? I think it's Regina Oscar King. winner Regina King. Yeah. <laughs> the mom, I believe. Is she? No, she's not the mom. No, she's not the mom. I thought it was shorts. I thought somehow I thought it was. Regina. I was like, wait a minute. Is it some other lady who looks like Regina King? Uh, no, she actually looks like Alicia Keys. I can't remember the actress's name though. I moment. remember there was a thing because she was lighter skinned than the actress in the original short, and mm. that was like a whole. But Michael B. Jordan plays his dad, who yeah. shows up from time to time. Interesting. In a, in a good ways. Just watch the show. Okay. <laughs> the other comic that I think that we almost never mentioned that totally qualifies the Ultimates to uh, Al Ewing. Okay. Because this team, it's, it's a team of basically mostly black and brown superheroes who are all somehow either science fiction or science based, okay. right? And everything that this team has to do directly relates to traveling other dimensions, uh, far deep space threats, right? And it is, they're led by Adam Brashear, who is the Blue Marvel. Who is a, a super intelligent uh, black man who was a superhero in the Marvel universe? But his story is that at some point something happened where everyone forgot he existed, right? And then he's basically now that he's back, he has decided that he'll let other superheroes do the like the punching of the bank robbers day to day thing. He will deal with things that act, actually have to affect reality, right? And he's put together a team including Carol Danvers and Monica Rambeau, and so it's got a bunch of characters that you might be familiar with if you're following black superheroes. Right, but they're all in one unit together, and there was like two or three volumes of that that are really good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that's cool. One one character we have not talked about DC at all, hardly. Yeah, which is uh, you know just kind of like the elephant in the room. There are characters that I want to be more enjoyable from that Af Afrofuturism lens that unfortunately are uh, cyborg. This is something that you know I, I tell Terry about all the time when I come through the shop. I'm like, I'm a big fan of Black Boy Joy. Show me some happy black superheroes. This is what yeah. I want to see. I mean, you've got superpowers. You're fighting crime. Sometimes that's an enjoyable experience. But usually we get the ex-football star that got in a horrible accident or the ex-race car driver that got in a horrible accident. You see where I'm going or Miss, here. Or Missy, uh, Missy Knight where she like loses an arm this is, in an explosion. This is, right. like, this is due, though, to like when characters created, right? So like the, the entire Marvel Universe is created out of a bunch of characters who suffer tragedies and get superpowers. Mm -hmm. So... That being the, the sort of like the beginning of the Silver Age of how like characters are created, it becomes like it, it becomes through like 1986, 
any character created before 1987 largely had some kind of tragic hook in their origin story. Cyborg had to be blown up, basically eaten by a bunch of plasma, to yeah. get thrown into the thing. Misty Knight had to have an arm removed to get, like, you know, the, yeah. the, the bionic arm or whatever. This is this is common for the era in which all these characters create. Science accidents make superheroes. Sure. Right. And you're missing the like reading comics in which you get like black dudes who get superpowers and they're thrilled with it because the first thing that a writer is going to sit down and do is where's my conflict coming from? And again, the Marvel way of writing, which a lot of guys came up reading, is you have to have internal conflict in your own group, mm -hmm. right? And you're just it's hard to get that when the first thing anybody wants to write is two dudes who are supposed to be buddies, like punching each other out. If you grew up in Marvel comics. Two superheroes who meet each other for the first time on a rooftop, they gotta fight. They got and then, it. And then, <laughs> yeah. like, whole, this whole, whole second issue is about why they were fighting. And the third issue, they realize it's a bad guy, we gotta fight the bad guy. But if it's a DC comic, Jews' tradition is two superheroes meet on a rooftop, the first thing they do is plant a barbecue. Yes. Right? Oh. And then the second issue is all about the thing that attacks the barbecue. And the third issue, they beat the thing, right? That's how that always is, in general. So if you will know, now you know, if you, if you were reading any comic, and it's a DC comic or a Marvel comic, and just, just consider, did they fight first or cook first? first? And you'll know if you're reading a DC character or a Marvel. <laughs> that's, so that's a good match. But no, because we were just watching, uh, this morning, uh, we were just watching Teen Titans Go. Which yes. I don't know. I, it's so funny because I remember the original Teen Titans show, which was like very serious, very much like a serialized thing. And then there's Teen Titans Go, which is like really zany and like yeah. super fun. Yeah. And it, Cyborg is amazing on that. So like I just, I, he's a lot of fun on that. Because awesome. something like that, they remove the idea that Cyborg has to have this conflict with his father and he's constantly angry and, and, and mad at his very existence. Yeah. There's like no backstory, which yeah. is like, yeah. and it, you know, you're talking about the idea of like this weight of uh, like how comics have been and like how, you know, people think it's Chris Evans, but really like Captain America has existed for a long time. And like for me, like as someone younger or like, you know, like him, you know, you might be like, I just want to read the stuff. I don't want to know all this history. And so for me, Teen Titans is like super fun because you're just like, they're just having fun and like having birthday parties and stuff. I agree with you, and a lot of that is uh, owed to the voice actor for Cyborg on that show, Carrie Payton, yeah, who also great. plays uh, King Ezekiel on The Welcome Day, mm -hmm. and he just has this energy about him that just makes you just fall in love with whatever he's. But he was doing. also the one before, like he was also serious Cyborg. He's so got he's range. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I can't watch. Well, I have to rage quit Walking Dead. I can't. Do there's, there's one comic that I can think of that I consider to be Afrofuturistic, even though there are barely any black people in it. Oh. That is the Jonathan Hickman run of the X Men. Okay. Uh -huh. He has absolutely written an Afrofuturistic comic. It just happens to be the X Men. He has taken the, the he's turned mutants into a culture, right? He has stated out loud that. Mutants have been beset upon long enough and, and, and abused and manipulated by society that they are now going to literally use their abilities to come together as one group. The whole, they literally make a call out to the mutant diaspora. It's mentioned. It's called that. They all really? come together. They come together at, a, at, at an origin point common to all of them. And then they leave. They're going off into space and going and doing whatever. And they're like, hey, look, guys, we're out of here. All of us, every, every mutant, now we're all brothers and sisters and everything. It doesn't matter if you were a villain. It doesn't matter if you were a hero. All you have to be is a mutant. You have access to Mutant Island, right, which can get you anywhere. He, they, he takes the concept that, that technology can be uh, biological, mm -hmm. right? And they have, a, they have their own plant-based language, uh, plant-based language and plant-based technology. It's a vegan language. <laughs> it's weird. It's weird. He, the language is printed in the comic. So, like, if you if you're reading the comic, there are times in which a thing is said, 
and it's printed in the specific uh, uh, letter form that Hickman's come up with. Well, it's like and it, Cohen, right? Yeah. yeah. And you could you could you could figure out what's being said here, yeah. right? And and all of it is all you have to do is just if you if you squint or close your eyes, imagine everyone's black, right? And you get the thing that I, that actually is the thing that kind of well, let's just say that <laughs> when I think about Black Panther, yes. there are two things that pop into my head, and it is one, Killmonger was wrong, but Killmonger had a point. And it is that Wakandans, for all of their technology and all of their ability, right, had no desire whatsoever to pull the diaspora together. Right? They weren't about to do it. Wakanda was for Wakandans. Right? That was the entire plan. And for everything that they were capable of doing towards the future, if you were not born in Wakanda, it wasn't for you. Right? It was not for you. So I feel like in Hickman's X-Men run, he is literally doing the, we can all come together, we're going to figure it out, and we're going to leave this pain and this damage behind. Whereas Black Panther, the part that gets yada, yada, yada over was the only person there, the only person there who's actually willing to say, you know what? It ain't got to be that we can do something about this. Is the one dude who, when he would do something about it, was also going to murder everybody. So he's I not mean, the good guy. Wait a minute now, because Nakia also said the same thing first, and she was without the murder part of it. Like she was not. She wanted to murder people. She was like, "We can do so much more." Remember at the beginning, we can do so much more, but we're not going to do so much more because we kind of won't allow it, and they don't want to do so much. More. <laughs> right. I think that's why we don't see Nakia around that much after, because she was right. She was the most sense, you know, level-headed yeah. person there. And then they went ahead and did the thing that she said they should do anyway. And so she's like, I'm out. And you don't see her in Avengers. She's like, I got, I'm, I'm not hanging out with these people anymore. I'm done. Y'all should have listened to me. Should have listened. <laughs> people didn't have to die. Those poor rhinos. You know? Poor rhinos. <laughs> Spoilers. Sorry if anybody hasn't seen the, it like that. There's another thing in, in television that I think, uh, if you're looking for Afrofuturism, has accidentally done it really well. Uh, the Expanse. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, the expanse has it deals with three groups of people. One is the people of Earth, one is the people of Mars, and one is the people of what's the belt, it's an asteroid belt, who are basically a minor culture who found themselves in the middle of a war between Earth and Mars. But the difference is if you pay attention to the, the the belter's culture, it is all deeply rooted in Africa and deeply rooted in Creole, right? There's their their language and everything about them is is pulled directly out of like an underclass of American black society, right? And many of the characters are of color. Right? right, but like you can tell, they are they are no longer Earthers and they're absolutely not Martians. Right, right? they're definitely not that. And the in, in the, if you get to the, if you make it to fourth season, which you should, it's the best show on television. I like to refer to as the Wire in Space. But, <laughs> that's uh, a good bitch. Uh-huh, it's the that's Wire in Space. <laughs> if you are if you are if you are watching the show, you get to the fourth season, you realize there's a point at which all these guys want is they want independence and the right. To, to, to self-determination, mm-hmm. right? This is what they're all about. And they have, their culture is so much, their culture is so far removed from its origins, their bodies physically change to reflect that. Like they can't go back to Earth if they want it to, right? While Earth still needs them to do their jobs. It right. still needs them under the thumb. And they can't, ham- they, they, they can't have this anymore as their way of life. And it's, a, it's an extreme conflict, but everything about, when, you, when you're watching this show and you look at just their perspective and how they've developed, they just again just tell yourself they're all African, they're they're all Black Americans in space, and you'd be right. That kind of makes me think. Uh, we've kind of talked a lot about superheroes, which of course is part of comics. But are there any like non-superhero kind of African? I was thinking of um, Nydia Porafor has uh, a series called Laguardia, which is about her like. It's on my list. Yep. Yeah. Oh, sorry. So no, go that's for where it. she's. Yeah. she's it's, it's basically about immigration, and like she, I think is 
pregnant by an alien or somehow has been infused with alien technology. So like her hair starts turning into um, like vines, which is kind of a theme in many of Horror Force uh, work. Um, and it's really cool. It, again, it talks about immigration and like what it means to be like human or alien or whatever. That was really good. Yeah. Um, there's Bottom Feeders, which I, I just start. Have you guys read? It's, Bottom Feeders is like a graphic novel, and it's like about Chicago, sort of. And it's about this woman who moves back into uh, like a, a building that her family used to live in, and it's real creepy, and there might be monsters. And there's also talk of gentrification and like what you know when artists come into like mostly black or uh, Hispanic neighborhoods. Um, you know, so there's a lot of like depth in that one too. I don't know if, uh, if there's anything else that not super on your list, but um, was it a bitter root? I guess sure. Yeah, uh, yeah. by David Walker oh, and yeah. uh, Sanford Green. They were the team that did the uh, the last uh, Luke Cage and Power Man. I'm sorry, Power Man and Iron Fist run over at Marvel, and they just basically packed up and went and did an indie book. And uh, it's it's a beautiful, uh, wonderful story. Um, would Concrete Park be? Concrete Park counts. Yep. Yeah. That's the one with. Eric Alexander? Yeah, Eric Alexander co-wrote it. Uh, From uh, Living Single. Yeah. Uh, Maxine Shaw, Attorney at Law. Yeah, that's that's a crazy book, too. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Living <laughs> 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 Single, right? Living Single is amazing. It's not ever futuristic, but it is amazing. It's, it's, it's still worth a watch. Glad yeah. I got my girls. Glad I got that's my girls, right. for sure. Right. <laughs> 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 yeah. I feel like we can't really discuss, discuss uh, Afrofuturism without talking about music a little bit, too. Yeah, no. And I, I didn't really say this, but Afrofuturism, to me, is like kind of That's transcends media, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. Movies, music, yeah. uh, art, dance, all that stuff. So. Yeah, so um, of course, first uh, one of the first artists that comes to mind is um, uh, Janelle Monet. Uh, oh my goodness, that the, the first album that really. The Arc Android. The Arc Android, yes. It told such an amazing story from start to finish. And there's a lot of Afrofuturism themes uh, tied into that. Even the cover of it is uh, just a picture of her inspired by Metropolis. Yep. Uh, that that old uh, you know, sure, 19th. Oh wow, okay. <laughs> she got I said I was a nerd. Okay. Yes. <laughs> but that's wonderful. She continues that. Uh, Missy Elliott, of course, with her music video catalog. I mean, she dressed up as as Mega Man. Her yep. and Brat fought robots in space. You can't get more, you know, <laughs> yeah. than that. That's just amazing, you know. Uh, everything that Missy Elliott did, uh, you know, she basically um, was doing all kind of just like superhero stuff in those in those videos all the time. So I, I feel like she belongs in the conversation too. I would think uh, Chicago in action. Actually, uh, Sun Ra is a was a right. big. Um, yes. I don't know if people know about him now, but like he was a really uh, instrumental person. He basically said he was from Saturn and he was an alien and like you know come with me on this trip to um, these other planets. And uh, you know he would film videos and do music and it was really really fascinating. Basically, he was an avant jazz dude who just was not really designed to be on Earth. I would say it's <laughs> not really his thing, you know. For me, musically, um, so those are good examples. An example for me is um, I don't when I when I'm thinking of something that is is Afrofuturistic, or if I'm in the mood to hear something in that in that vein, I go uh, I start again with the you start with like the jazzy kind of stuff, right? But yeah. then for where I'm at now, listen to bands like Animals as Leaders, okay, right? Because mm-hmm. I'm it's a proc, thing. so like it's oh, it's going to be it's going to be uh, it's not going to be three-minute-long songs, but it's they're a prog instrumental band. Um, their leader is a guy named Tozan Abasi, who plays an eight-string guitar amazingly, um, and it's 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 symphonic journeys in a way. Like it's, it's it's built on jazz traditions, but also classical, also sort of like definitely rock and metal. 
Um, oh, wow. And it's the kind of thing like as if I'm if I'm creating a, like if I'm an artist, so if I'm, if I'm creating a piece and I want something that is that kind of keeps me in a, in a mode that works with an futuristic theme or mindset, I listen for something like that um, because it is it's it's modern, right? And it's built on other art forms of the past or other musical forms of the past, and, and it's clearly rooted in them. And it's very technical, and I like very technical music. I don't do a lot of pop. I thought you were going to say, like, Carl Biff on the Dell, like, which is what I always go to. When uh, I sure, play. sure. Okay. I, that, that completely qualifies. No, I know. It's just like, just, I mean, the, the, just album covers alone. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you know? <laughs> Three, four hours just staring at album covers. Or, um, they used to tell a story in the album cover alone. They did. And that, yeah. that's where, but that's, that starts with Sun Ra and gets you to Parliament and Funkadelic, right? That's like step two is right there. And even like Earth, Wind, and Fire would have the yeah. um, more pyramids on the cover, but there's also spaceships flying from the pyramids. And yeah. that was really cool stuff. Yeah. Oh, the Chicago guys. Yeah, I know. There's a lot of Chicago Afrofuturistic connections. It's uh, it's pretty interesting. Um, what was I going to say? It's all that dope smoke in the 70s. Oh, yes. I wouldn't know anything about no. that. No. It's just <laughs> stuff I saw. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing I did. Things I saw. I was too young to do. So one thing that I... Um, when we're talking about the different characters, like, for example, Riri is... Basically, the new Iron Man, Ironheart, and then uh, Moon Girl was there was Moon Boy originally. So there's like Moon Boy is more like kind of a Neanderthal, right? Yeah. But I mean, these are like existing sure. characters yeah. where yeah. you kind of added a. a <coughs> do you think that makes it more accessible? You know, we're talking about like you know comic book sales. Do you think that makes that more accessible to, to non-black people? Uh, so yeah. it's a two part. So yeah. step one is you can't. It is difficult for a mainstream comic book company to create a new character of color. Out of whole cloth and have lots of people buy that thing sure. without some touchstone or something that already existed is familiar. Okay. Okay. So the most successful new characters of color or not are characters who first were attached to something that was already successful. You do that for about a year or two and then you launch them, mm-hmm. you springboard them off into their own thing. That works. Like a Harley Quinn? Harley Quinn qualifies. Okay. I know because she's, not she's Batman related right. and like, yeah, absolutely. But was created in the 90s and it took 30 years sure, yeah. for her to like actually have her own comic and like you know yeah. it could happen faster than 30 years. Right. Someone argued you develop her own character. Yeah, away yeah. You, from but Joker. but it, but yeah. fans have to get to know the character first in something that is not a risk. Mm-hmm. Like like when it comes to readership and, and throwing down money, readership is largely risk averse. So mm-hmm. you if it's Iron Man, if it's Tony Stark, we're talking about reread. You start her in Iron Man because Iron Man fans are already buying that comic. They get introduced to the character. You can give them 18 months, two years of Riri and various concepts and, and before fans are now like, I'm ready to see her branch out. If you just drop Riri on them, right? Even if brown people all flock to the comic shop, you're not gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna lose a lot of people who have no, no touchstone with the character. So you start them somewhere where people can get to know them before you launch them themselves. That works. Yeah. Right? It's so, like when you're, when you're watching a, a sitcom and it feels like a backdoor pilot for another thing. Yeah. Because it is. Yeah, it could, because it's a backdoor pilot. Right. That's why backdoor pilots exist. Mm-hmm. Right? That is the thing. So in the indies, however, so like if you're not talking about Marvel and DC, in the indies, you have two advantages. One, there are a lot of people who want to read an independent thing. Mm-hmm. Two, you don't have to have 60 years or whatever of history behind said character. And a third benefit is, honestly, it's short-lived. It can be short-lived. You can right. do two, three volumes and get out and just create another thing, mm-hmm. right? The characters who are of color, who are super interesting in these stories, all kinds of stories get told um, because there we can just jump right in, give you the story that you want. It doesn't even have to sell 80,000 copies. Like, we can go with a lower uh, uh, sales point there and it still be a success, right? And you can have character development in the Indies. Like my, what I always say about these other characters is 
once the character appears on some kid's underwear, they're done developing. Oh, yeah. We're that's, done with growth. Growth ends at underwear. That's when you know you're made. <laughs> no more. No more growth. The minute, the minute that kid is, that, that comic book character is on the kid's underwear, a backpack, an ice cream bar. I'm sitting here thinking about the stuff my kid has. Like, wait a minute. <laughs> no more growth. If you go home and you look at anything, yes. whatever, whatever that kid right there, whatever that kid has that has a superhero on it, whatever that superhero is, he is, he is peaked. No other change will happen with that superhero because he exists now. If it's on some kid's boots, we're done. Yes. Right? Yes. So, so the actual growth and development can happen in things that are not IPs designed to now sell future roller coaster rides. Right? We're at like we're just at telling stories. Sure. Right? That's what the indies get you. You can do any kind of story about any kind of character. Um, you can explore after futuristic things. You can you can tell a story as dark as you want or as light as you want from the same publisher. Mm-hmm. Right? And have it be a success and find its audience. Because now we're not just saying, you know, Riri Williams is, is completely dependent upon all these people who keep buying it every month, mm-hmm. right? Riri has a better shot of making it to a Saturday morning cartoon than being a successful graphic novel. And once she's a Saturday morning cartoon, the job is done, right? Like now, millions of people can see Riri, yeah. not 30,000 people we were hoping were 60,000 people. I guess the counterpoint to that, sort of, maybe? Like, I remember going to see Black Panther... I think I went on like 11 o'clock on like a Friday, we took the day off. Mm-hmm. And like it was full of, I want to call them like Mimas, like old sure. church yeah. ladies. The like, aunties. Yeah, like aunties yeah. were there. Aunties and I was sure. like, I know these aunties have not sat through all the movies. They do not know all the lore. Mm-hmm. Right. Why are they here? And like my parents, my parents are not superhero fans. They went to Black Panther. It was just like such a huge thing. So like why, like I, I get what you're saying about like, like you literally just, just made my point though. Black Panther was okay. a movie. Oh, that's why. Oh, they so, didn't walk in and buy the graphic novel. Some of them I'm sure did. A lot of people yeah. got gra- Black Panther graphic novels as gifts. I sold them. Yeah. Right? You gave some away. Look, I got paid to be black that month. Like, I'm yes. Like, <laughs> I'm very happy. I'm very happy this Black Panther movie happened. I got actual cash money for being a black man in America. Like, that is not a thing that happens to me. I can't wait for Black Panther. Well, you got, I mean, I got plans. You do a lot of speaking, too. Like, I mean, stuff like this, for example. But I remember, like, around the time, like, you were doing stuff with, like, Loyola and yeah. stuff. Yeah. I had three different universities that had me come in. Northwestern had me come in, talk to kids in a professor's home. So about Black Panther. Yeah. Then all these, it was like, there was, had to be like, probably 75 kids in this woman's house. And, and then they all went and saw the movie. They wanted me to go with them. I was like, nah, I'm going to the bar. <laughs> Black Panther no, was no, just Western kids. It no, was no, such no. an interesting no, point in history. Um, you know, of course, we can't have this conversation right. without talking it about was, Black Panther. I, I was like, we got to get to it somehow, but I was like, let's, let's ease into it. Yeah, because there yeah, there's, there's more to Afrofuturism in comics than just Black Panther, but Black Panther is Which is why I think we had to. Yeah, the way we had to do Let's it, that makes it. sense. Yeah. Absolutely. And that actually does uh, tie back into your question about you know characters being uh, bought into the modern world. It may have started somewhere a little less uh, yeah. a little less black. Do you want to talk a little bit about like how Black Panther got started? So Black Panther was invented by Stan Lee. And Jack, we'll say we'll say Stan and Jack, but mostly let's say Jack. Mostly Jack, because I'm a realist. Jack. I'm gonna have to say Jack. Yeah, but it was I'll a, tell the, I'll tell the Stan story, which means I'm just gonna make Stan Lee fans cry. <laughs> That's an argument for another time. One of my favorite hobbies. <laughs> <laughs> but we're gonna talk about burst the Uncle Stan balloon. <laughs> yes, he was a fantastic four side character, basically. When Black he Panther. was created, he, he he first debuted in an issue of the Fantastic Four, and it was. The idea being that Jack Kirby literally said, we're doing all these other things in our comics, and our comics are supposed to be about telling stories that relate to what's going on in society right now. There is no, there's no, he, Jack Kirby literally looked outside the Marvel office and said there's no black character for these people that we're seeing walking around right now, these black men. There's no character for them. 
So Stan was like, what you got? Yeah. So Jack was like, I got an idea. Bam, Jack went home, drew up um, a character that he referred to as a coal tiger. So imagine uh, like a kind of a Mardi Gras fit, like kind of African colors and things. And uh, a, very, a very happy, strong black man who was designed on Jack Johnson, the, bo the boxer. Okay. Right? The reason Black Panther has the dark blue, black, you know, purple outfit now with a full face mask is because Stan Lee, who every kindly old man everybody loves so much, Stan said, if people see that guy, we're going to get hate mail. We can't have a black dude's face for this character. So Jack had to go back and redesign it and come up with a full face and mask it was because Stan was pretty nice. It was before, like, the Black Panthers, right? I want to say it, yeah. it. It predates yes. The, the right, concept like, predates them. The Black Panthers Black as, as an organization. Yes. Okay. Right. It, 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 it predates yes. the organization, but yes. not the uh, the uh, the air um, the pilots right. in the Black Panthers. Right, right, right. Yeah. Oh, I didn't right. know about that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it predates that. So there's so they, Jack comes up with the, the the classic idea of what the Black Panther now looks like, mm -hmm. right? And the idea is he has to first. He's going to first prove because he's created a noble warrior king hero, right? So the first thing Black Panther has to do is he needs the Fantastic Four's help for something. So in order to prove that they're capable of helping him, he breaks into their headquarters. And if they can if they are capable of stopping him, then they're worthy of them helping him. We didn't even do the barbecue first. No, that's DC. That's the, DC. The, the barbecue. barbecue. I, no. got, I got they, something. They meet the Black Panther. He breaks in your crib. That's the first thing that happens. Yes. I the barbecue that. came next because okay. he invited them back to Wakanda and had the feast of friendship that they called. That, that, that did happen. That cool. AKA the barbecue. There is a point in which Marvel movie. tries to trial balloon what its readership, how their readership would react to seeing a black man's face every month. They redesigned Black Panther's costume again, and they removed the part around his mouth and nose. So you can see that in the Black Panther costume, there is a black man under the mask. They get the hate mail, they put the mask on. <laughs> Something so fast. Yes, <laughs> like yes. the, the costume, like costume stuff alone is just like. It, so. is, it is the, the first time that you get to actually see a black superhero in a mainstream comic. That is just clearly a black superhero is when Neil Adams decides that something has to change and he creates Jon Stewart, right? And he is he is creating Jon Stewart as a Green Lantern, as an alternate to Hal Jordan, and he at that point is flat out saying, no mask at all. Mm -hmm. It is going to be a black man who's going to be a Green Lantern. And then he creates this character, and that's damn the hate mail. Because even because Julius Schwartz, then a DC editor, was saying to Neil Adams, this is gonna, you know. Fans aren't going to react because to them back then, it, between like 1963 and 1973, all comic book fans were white people, right? They were all white boys, so like they were terrified of this hate mail. To which Neil was like, "Somewhere along the way, you're selling comics in Chicago, you're selling comics in Watts, you're selling comics in Queens, you're right. selling comics in the Bronx, right? You're selling comics in Brooklyn. Some of the people buying these comics are not white boys, right? So at some point, you're going to have to like get your head out of your butt." And like do this thing. And when did John Stewart? When was John Stewart? Uh, 1971, 72. Okay, I thought it was because I remember the cartoon, like when he was in the cartoon. 90s, yeah. yeah, well, yeah, yeah. So I didn't know. So DC even decided to kind of dip their toe in the water to decide whether or not they were going to start featuring more black heroes at one point. I don't know if this predates John Stewart, but I remember famously they had a um, a survey in the back of one of their books, Gosh. and it's like these are things that we would like to know if you want to read stories about space, uh, war. Uh, black people 
And it was just one of the checkboxes. So, <laughs> like, it's cool when you're a checkbox. Yeah, you know, that's when you know you've made it. When you're a checkbox. Is that what I check, but I, I check space. That's because <laughs> I I felt like if I got to read comments about black people, it's gonna be my parents. Uh, and I don't want to read comments about my parents. My concern, <laughs> I want to read comments about space. My concern is I don't I don't know if uh, Luke Cage predates John Stewart or not. But uh, Luke Cage does not predate. Oh, it doesn't really. No, wow. no, Luke Cage is mid seventies. Okay. Um, John Stewart is early seventies. Luke Cage, I think, is even after Black Lightning. Okay, so He's Black like Lightning Black is the first. Black Lightning is the first African American superhero to get his own comic. Right. So that's where I was going actually, yeah. uh, because Luke Luke Cage is that black exploitation superhero. Uh, yeah. It's basically like, oh, hey, Shaft has superpowers. Well, more superpowers. So, you know, you put this black man in a, in, a, in a yellow silk shirt and a tiara, you call it a day. This is what he was for decades, for generations. This is Now we can talk about sort of the genius that is Stan Lee. Okay. Because Stan Lee's only real talent was in promotions and marketing. Okay. He wasn't a very good writer and he didn't, he wasn't a decent comic book creator. He really didn't create things. So he, he, he promoted many things and his, as editor, when he wasn't doing the like writer director thing he was doing. As editor and publisher, one of the things that he'd always wanted Marvel to do was keep its finger on the pulse of what was going on in the world. Right. So or in, in the community or in, in in the city. So that's where you get things like taking advantage of black exploitation or yes. like uh, even Hong Kong action films or like there was a bit where Marvel made like, you know, kaiju monster comics because that was a big thing. So like so much of what happened in pop culture definitely influenced how Marvel created characters. Iron Man is a direct result of James Bond movies. Wow. James Bond movies being a thing, that's why Tony Stark is the dude with the briefcase and the, the pencil-thin mustache at the time. It looked nothing like Robert Downey Jr. It looked a whole hell of a lot more like Errol Flint. Yes, right? yes. It was because they were trying to basically be a James Bond superhero, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. That They just gave the tragic hook of having a heart problem. Because he had to have that tragic accident, like you said earlier. Yes, he had to have a tragic accident. Right. Okay. That's crazy. Yeah. I didn't know right. that. I, I remember the blessing. There was that really famous one of Luke Cage, like, talking smack to um, Dr. Doom. Yes. And, like, yes. punching him. And I was like, I love that. I don't know what's happening here, but I love that. So that, that scene in particular is great to me because... Uh... <laughs> I was like, who is writing this? Who is writing this? Do they know what? how black people act? Like, do they know a black person? It was just very confusing. In, in particular... He came to the decision that Doctor Doom owed him five hundred dollars specifically. So Luke Cage did everything for money. Yes, I he mean, was a hero for hire. Yeah, you see. So he decided to um, borrow uh, the Fantastic Car, which is a flying car. Sure. Yes, flying bathtub. A flying bathtub <laughs> slash car, <laughs> and go to this imaginary country, Liberia. Is it Liberia? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Uh, and decided to take on Doctor Doom alone to get his $500. As you do. Dr. Doom was like, you really just flew over here to get $500 from me. And the best Luke Cage line of all time, which cemented his role as a black exploitation character forever, where's my money, honey? And he punches him in the face. <laughs> <laughs> That's just it. There's no shaking that off oh, after that man. Point. So It's crazy to me that it was like a show, like an actual show, like this pretty critically acclaimed show. And I was like, this, yeah. is, this was the source material? Like, yes. Yeah. It's yeah. fascinating. They made it work somehow. I mean, that's, I guess that's... But this is, that's also how major publishing companies work. All these things are IPs. So, like, it might be that that's the source material, but it's a character. Like, when Disney bought Marvel, they didn't buy it because they wanted to make comic books. They bought it because they wanted 6,000 characters they could do anything they wanted with. Right. 
right? Cinematic 6,000 characters they could sell or, or light lease, you know, yeah. out, and then more things could happen. Yeah, I have, I have, And the average fan has no idea what the comments were like. They don't care. I have really complicated feelings about the fact that Disney has, like, basically bought all of our mythologies, mm-hmm. like, all of our modern mythologies, and, like, they control them. I can't, we'll not even get into Star Wars, but, like, you know, that whole... I tell people is, all the time the solution to that is for you to remember that the mouse did not climb through your window and steal your comic books. Right, I bet... didn't do it. So, so yes, they, they, they're going to muck with your mythologies. Right. If you're watching it on your screen. Right. But if you do the hermit thing that ruins your life like Matt and I did, <laughs> you just rat hands through some boxes every so often. <laughs> that sounds you can, good. Like, you, can, you can take home the actual stories, you know, and you can, you Excuse know... Me, who's a Liberian over here? I'm a Liberian. I'm a Liberian. <laughs> right, everybody's like, <laughs> <"Sorry>, raise <laughs> <his> hand. <laughs> Um, Not gonna lie, I heard who the Latvarian told <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, uh oh, like really good ears. We That's are amazing. going to have a problem. Yes. <laughs> Split the table and Someone's about to get punched. Someone's right. looking for their money. That's <laughs> <laughs> the first library panel I've been on where a table got flipped. It's oh, fine. wow. It's fine. Okay. It's fine. All right. That's a whole different thing. Do, yeah. do, do we have other questions? Um, do questions I, mean, I, have, for the I always have lots of questions, but uh, I think we can ask if people. Have questions? I w- we would love to hear them, but if yeah. not, I can, you know, we should talk. That's not a problem. I'll see you handle that. I got a question. Just going back to the mask question, which is, and to your expansive definition, is Watchmen the show absolutely Ooh. futuristic? And and if you want to take it on just with mass justice and the way they did that, kind of. So the first superhero was, to your point, like masked black man masked in order not to show. Yeah. So. The answer, the answer number one is yes, I consider Watchmen to be Afrofuturistic because of the, the, the actual way the conceit in the Watchmen TV show is black people get reparations. Mm. You start right there. Black people actually get reparations, right? And then other things in the, in, in, the, in the story have happened to change how their world relates to black people, right? And how black people relate to themselves, right? That is a, that is a step the show takes, and I think it kind of matters. And absolutely, the hooded justice thing from the show is directly taken from stories of how black characters had to be presented in order to actually make it onto bookshelves. I give that show so much credit just for even making people realize that the Tulsa massacre actually happened. And it wasn't just fiction, because, you know, that was the first thing people said when the show debuted, which is... Oh, I can't believe they put something like this on television. Why would they make up this tragedy? No, dude. That happened. <laughs> Welcome right. to being black Tulsa's in America. Real. Right. Tulsa's yeah. real. Rosewood is real. Black Wall yeah. Street, all that. Philadelphia yeah. is real. <coughs> so. Things have happened. Yeah, when I talk about the history that I didn't learn until I was much... I haven't seen Watchmen because I don't have HBO, but like, you know, I knew about that, and I was like, I can't believe that they're like... This is happening. This is like a major television show that's talking about this thing that a lot of black people know about, but a lot of other people don't. Yeah. It's amazing the 180 that it took from the source material. Because yeah. I, famously, you know, I'm not a big fan of Watchmen. The book, the movie, I just feel like it's very pretentious. It's, it's a blind spot. It's a, yeah. So we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll discuss later. Man, but what? yeah, not, not the biggest fan. But the show, the show just managed to hit all the right notes. It was entertaining, it was informative. And, you know, it left a lot of questions after the fact in a good way. So I highly recommend that. That was another I, one if, that my if, parents watched. And, like, again, they're not superhero people. But I think Oscar winner Regina King yes. uh, <laughs> made them, like, really, like, I interrupted you. I'm sorry. No, I'm going to say that watching the book would have had more black characters in it if Charlton Comics had had black characters. And the only reason watching itself doesn't have 
that, that's the reason, is that Alan Moore, DC had acquired Charlton Comics and everything that it was, yeah. and Alan Moore wanted to use those specific characters. Okay. So, so Alan Moore had no problem in, with black people in his story. He, the characters he was using just weren't. Right? Okay. So the cool thing about this is the writers of the show understanding that there was nothing anti-black in terms of like not using black characters, but the world that existed was very anti-black, mm-hmm. right? And that's established in Watchmen, right? So, like, kind of subverting that thing and pulling it forward, I thought was very clever. Okay. Absolutely. Anybody else? Oh, sure. Hey, um, so kind of two parts to this one. Um, one, just interested in hearing your takes on Afrofuturism and video games in okay. particular. Um, and then two, um, the the most uh, as public or most recent Afrofuturism representation of the game was in um, the character Jax from Mortal Kombat 11's uh, ending yes. uh, to that oh, no. and the backlash that came with that. So oh, no. uh, interesting to hear where, like, some of your takes on that and um, just sort of exploring sort of how uh, the audiences that are required to help lift these characters up uh, react when they see Afrofuturism and take it as a threat. Okay, all right. So um, I'm going to spoil Mortal Kombat for a few people here if, okay. if you guys care about that. Uh, <laughs> so the most recent Mortal Kombat game uh, played, a, played around with time travel quite a bit. Uh, Jax is one of the characters in the game. He's got robotic arms because they were ripped off in the previous Mortal Kombat. Uh, so <laughs> at the end of this tournament, each character gets their own ending. Jax's ending was he wanted to go back in time to uh, basically uh, end slavery, right? So he made the world a, a black utopia, and it played out, you know, a little slideshow, and the internet was livid because that's what the internet does. I don't know. It's just kind of weird. But um, my take on it was it was it was interesting. Of course, the first thing you're going to want to do if you have time travel, you know, they always have the whole like, oh, I'm going to go and take down Hitler sort of thing. So what's What's a black person gonna do that you know has seen the effect of slavery? You know, maybe pull a, a haters through time like Dave Chappelle and go and <laughs> take down slavery. You know, so they were just showing that, and people got in their feelings about it. So uh, it, it was kind of just a, a weird moment in gaming. Um, I don't really, unfortunately, think that there's much of a presence of Afrofuturism in modern gaming. Um, there's a lot of appropriation. Uh, in particular, uh, what comes to mind, and it, it's a wonderful game, don't get me wrong, but Horizon Zero Dawn uh, took so much. Uh, this is this is a game based on a, a dystopian future where um, basically all technology is outlawed and people have finally started to co-opt it back into their lives. It's a good game, it's a fun game, but there's a lot of uh, appropriation in the game of different cultures, uh, particularly uh, a lot of people had concerns about the hair and its, its meaning. Um, but yeah, I, I would like to actually hear about some other Afrofuturistic games if you know of it. I'll tell you what to do in gaming. Okay. Stop playing all these games. Just go back to playing Skyrim. Yes. And then when you go play Skyrim, play as a red guard, <laughs> or you get mods, and you mod your game, your Skyrim game, because there's mods that will make it black. So all you do is just play Skyrim. It came out in 2011. It's right there for you. Right? You can play it on the PC, you can play it on the Xbox, you can play it on the Switch. On the Switch, you can play it on the Switch, you just can't model it. Yeah, I know. Right? I didn't game know Festa was sponsoring this panel. But yes. <laughs> I get that. So play Skyrim, right? That's what you do. You just All your other games are useless. Yes. You can make Skyrim as black as you need it to be. 
right? And it will never let you down. It will be there for you. You could walk away from Skyrim tomorrow and come back a year later. It will still be there. And it can make it, it would be even better a year later. That's Trust true. me. You That's can, the only game you need. Go play Skyrim. You can. I will, I will co-sign this to an extent. You can make Skyrim a, a, a more Afrofuturistic. Black as hell. <laughs> Afrofuturistic <laughs> game. You can make everybody a red guard. You can put lightsabers in it if you, you want You can make to. it black in the 73rd Cottage Grove if you want to. <laughs> that's black. Somebody's that's, out there for you. You can do it. That's super black. Skyrim is for you. Yes. Uh, just, just play the game that already allows you to do the thing that you specifically want to do because someone is already thinking about that thing because game developers are never going to make a game that stars black people in a way that you would want from an Afrofuturistic perspective because they're afraid that white teenagers would never buy it. Well, that's kind of a concern, too, because there are games that do Just for the realness, y'all. That's right. Skyrim, like Wu-Tang, is for the people. <laughs> Skyrim is for the people. Skyrim is for the people. So there, there are games that do star black protagonists. Mafia 3 sure. recently came out. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the other Watch one? Dogs Watch Dogs 2. Sure. There's, there's also a game, and I'm not remembering the name of it, but where it's like kind of a, I want to say like a fantasy kind of Afrocentric game. And uh, the, I remember the sprites being really pretty, but of course I'm not remembering the name of it. But it's like a super indie game. Like it's, you know, no big publishers. I, I made a black it. dude Mass Effect, but I couldn't get off the first planet I went to, and I gave that up and went back to playing Skyrim. There's, and it's There's a thing here. It's also, <laughs> you know, and it's, it's also funny because, like, I've been playing video games. I was thinking about this recently, like, since I was, like, four or five. And so, like, basically the only way that you're in a video game is if you're, like, one of the people in, one of the hookers, excuse me, in uh, um, GTA. Okay. I remember seeing that. A, a black woman specifically. And then, like, the ones where you can make the character, your hair choices are so bad. It's oh, like, my goodness, oh, yeah. my God. So, like, I just have one big dreadlock somehow. Like, that's yeah. not how <laughs> hair works or moves or does anything. And so, I mean, it's just a... It's uh, very important. I, I do remember, though, like, with um, one that... Talking about modding, there's a lot of black modders in... The Sims, which is not really like I'm calling it Afrofuturistic, but like the idea of like being able to like kind of put yourself in this game and, and make you how you want to be, like that's that's probably one of the, <laughs> the biggest games I know of where there's like a lot of like black modders. A lot of it comes out of like the need for a community to develop something that it's been looking for. So if you you're waiting for the main developers to do a thing and they won't do it, modding communities exist yeah. to get you the thing that you're looking. Someone is going to do this, and people just come together and make it themselves. As long as the platform allows for it. I would say until people yeah. make the version of a game that you are really looking for, until that happens, support the modders who are already doing it. People Absolutely. always say that, though. There are people always like, oh, well, if it's you don't see yourself in this, you need to make it. And it's like, yeah, okay, with like the money and yeah. the time yeah. and the computing I have, skills. I have none of the like, ability to make my own mods. Right, or, or like even movies yeah. or books or whatever. I mean, there's different uh, levels of entry, but that's yeah. so reductive. It's like you don't even... Right. The point is not like, yeah, of course, if I could, I would, but like... Right. Other people should be thinking about this, yeah. not just you and me. It's true. So. My biggest problem with that argument is always we are making our own things. Right. It's just you folks aren't paying attention. Right. Right. So or the amount of or the amount of like power, energy, and effort it takes to to get that signal out there that a thing has been done. Yes. Right. And in, in independent comics, this is also why um, it is sort of the biggest issue is like my the catalog I do my comic book order for my shop from is about eight hundred pages thick every month. Right. <laughs> the 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 big two publishers take everything that they're soliciting right out of the catalog and put it in their own little publications, right? Mm-hmm. So the two little inserts come right out. The catalog is still this thick. <laughs> this much of that is independent comics, yeah. right? That's a small amount. It's a large amount. It's, a large it's, it's amount. massive. There's a ton of tons of pages are independent. Comics. The small amount is like T-shirts and glassware and Glass games, ones. you know what I mean, and toys. Okay. That's a tiny amount. 
The amount dedicated to independent comics that are not Marvel and DC is massive. It's the bulk of the catalog. Ah. The trouble is that uh, that section is massive. It's so large that every retailer has to decide what he's got room for on the shelves right. and what will sell. And what will sell. Mm-hmm. Well, what they perceive they can sell, let's say, 80% of. You know? okay. So for me, what I have to think about is, do I have the audience for this thing if I risk it? Right. So when I'm thinking, aha, a lot of people are trying to make uh, something that is Afrofuturistic and really cool and really super interesting. Can I sell X amount of these to X amount of people? Is the calculation I have to do in my head, mm-hmm. right? And then, are there enough people doing it so that not only do I order this thing, I can order things that support that thing? If I just order this one book and I sit it in one place on my shelf, it's gonna get missed. But if I can buy eight different titles, right, that support this thing, mm-hmm. right? Now they're kind of seeded around, and you can create something that way, right? But like, if Marvel or DC has to do it, it's never gonna happen. The independent guys are doing it. They just need retailers have to make that internal calculation that if I take a chance on your comic, mm-hmm. Matt's comic might get pushed off my shelf. I don't want to do that. The today. big thank you. Well, but but the big publishers, their whole the whole game to stop you from getting your comic on the shelf right. is eight comics have to be about Batman, fifteen right. comics have to be about Spider Man, right? Yeah. So I have to think Batman and Spider Man sell. I can't risk not getting one of those eight comics because mm-hmm. Batman sells, right? right? So me personally, I decide Batman's got eight comics. I only need two of them, right? Spider-Man has 15 comics. I only need two of them, right? right? And I just go ahead and punt the rest of that. That way I can give independent comics some space and specifically when they get to the point where they're trade paperback, when they're collected, not when they're monthly because at that point, I don't tell the fan in my shop that he missed six issues of this Last summer, yeah. there's one volume sitting on the shelf. That's the thing you need. I tell them to get that thing. Don't even tell them it was ever a floppy copy, right? That way, I have a chance to support an independent thing that might be the kind of thing you're looking for, and I can support it deeper than having to sweat the monthly sales of that thing, right? right. And having to argue with my publishers over, you know, why am I not ordering two copies of this extra ghostwriter thing that I don't need? <laughs> Let me ask you. This is, like, kind of in the weeds, but, like, um, do you guys get like a book that tells you, hey, these are all the things that are coming out? Like, like we get like That's the public- catalog, yeah. okay, so we get like publications that are like, oh, here's a review of these like fuzzy books, and here's we something don't get you might that. Know about. What we get is if what I get is okay. something that is uh, I have to kind of like, you know, you know, you ever had like that uncle who would come around and tell you he's going to take you to Disney World, he's going to like, you know, you're going to go to Great America and do all these kind of things, but actually, all he really does is kind of come around when there's a barbecue, but he never really does things. Right. Like, the comic book distributor system is a lot like that. That's not real specific. They're not. They aren't. They are not your friends. They're gonna give you. They're gonna give you a list of the things that they've got, and everything is. They're gonna write it up themselves, and everything is the most amazing thing you absolutely must have in your shop. Okay. You have to think you can't trust these guys. Yeah. Right. You cannot trust them. They're gonna do what they do, which is what you are the customer. Well, in this case, I'm the customer, not you, as retailer. I buy the thing, and then I have to convince you to buy it for me so that you save me from my possibly bad decisions. Right. Right? That's the system. Okay. So when I get the catalog, I'm not getting a review of the thing from other people. I'm getting what the distributor tells me is going to be amazing in two months when it shows up sight unseen. Right? Okay. I don't get like a I don't get a copy free copy to read a lot of times. If it's an independent thing, the creators themselves will send me a PDF oh, cool. book yeah. to try to like get me to get you into it. Like that's a thing. Oh, and yeah. I can trust that. Like, once if I get a PDF and I can read it first, I'm almost guaranteed to work. That's awesome. Right? Small publishers too, like first, second. Yeah. You know, because they do that for the for the reviewers. Yeah. As well. They'll send me a copy of it and just be like, hey, check out um uh, the Jin Luen Yang book that just came out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's it, it makes me wanna support it even more. Yeah. Yeah. That way at least then in, in narratives, there's like a way that you'll get a story that 
like, you know, that you're looking for that is, is something that is more than what you've had before, like, you know, more than the status quo, like that kind of thing. That works, you know. Sorry, did we answer your question? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it was like Skyrim. He played Skyrim. That was the answer to his question. He was not. The one recognition I saw, his problems. Yes. And it's, it's not direct, and it's maybe uh, another part of it, but I think Destiny does a good job oh. with, with, with with representing okay. uh, people, but also there's uh, one of the lead one of the lead uh, NPCs is very coded. They're an alien, but they're very coded. Gotcha. Okay. So, the way Martian Manhunter is black. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I always like I. <laughs> Man, I don't like I that always drives me nuts because I'm like just put black people in it. But yeah. like I, I mean I You have you it's a very customizable world okay, cool. and it's not a narrative that you follow, so okay. it's still it's there's a gap there. They're just hanging out. Um, but it's it's interesting in that when you have a world where people are kind of creating their own characters and putting into it like a Skyrim in a lot mm-hmm. of ways, that's kind of the only way to get in there. And I think that's the halfway point where the developers meet, but yeah. it's still halfway. Yeah, I'm, I don't mean to roll my eyes at you. I'm rolling my eyes at society in general. Yes. <laughs> I've been receiving it on both ends. Yeah, for sure. Any questions over here? Omar, you got something. You always have, you always have great questions. Over here. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk later. We're going to go to lunch. Oh, and Omar's going to be like, man, look, here's what I want to know. I have a lot of, I have a lot of questions. I did have one request. Oh, yes. Um, for people who are looking to get an Afrofuturism kit, um, if you had like a gateway piece of media, um, could each of you recommend one? You ready to write? Okay, first name is Yatasha Womack. Anything she's written. She literally wrote the book on Afrofuturism. Yeah. Like literally, she has a book and it's titled Afrofuturism. <laughs> yeah. Of course, uh, Octavia Butler, Parable yeah. of the Sower. Oh yeah, hello. Yeah, oh there you go. N.K. <laughs> uh, Jemison, who we, who we mentioned earlier, uh, the uh, was it the Broken Earth trilogy? You know, mm-hmm. that's good stuff. One of my favorite writers is a guy named Alistair Reynolds. He's an astrophysicist. <gasps> <laughs> oh I've never, I've never gotten that reaction. Before. Why? That's why you come to the library because you have read the stuff. You're like, oh. Right, librarians read books. Yep. A little bit. <laughs> I was a little not bit. ready. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, Alison Reynolds wrote a book called Blue Remembered Earth, um, and I would recommend that. It, he doesn't normally do Afrofuturism, so I don't think he realized he was doing what he did. <laughs> but he did, and he's like, he's my favorite like hard sci-fi author. So. That guy writes something, I tend to go and get it, but that one for sure follows an uh, African family through time into space. You know, it's what cool. was it called? Blue Remembered Earth. It's book one of three. But pretend that you don't have to, be, that you're not getting sucked into a, a thick, like hard sci fi trilogy, because you are. Um, <laughs> a lot of people don't like when that happens to yeah. them, yeah. but you're going to get kidnapped. The best ones you're are gonna when they sneak up on you. Like yeah, that, right? yeah. 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 Uh, everyone said books, so I'll go and do something else. Uh, I, uh, I definitely Janelle Monae, the Arc Android, but I would also say Brother from Another Planet, which is like kind of an older That's old school. movie, but it uh, stars. Oh God, what's his name? It's the same guy who played yeah. in Joe, um, Terminator. Joe, Joe Morton. Yes, thank you. And um, so basically, he comes to Brooklyn. I want to say. And he's kind of a refugee. No, he's a refugee. And there are people that are after him. He can't talk, but he like kind of goes around and like does odd jobs, and like people like get to know him. And so as he's running from these aliens that are like these bounty hunters, um, just kind of like how he experiences the world. And it kind of does my thing that I just complained about, where it's like aliens as black people. But uh, uh, it's definitely really interesting to kind of see that perspective in a movie. There, there's not a ton. Aside of Black Panther, there's not a ton of Afrofuturistic movies. So I'll put that up there. Um, also, if you get this is another really weird one, but if you can find a, a copy or online of Cosmic Slop, which was a um, 
a thing on HBO. It was like three movies, three short movies, and the first one that like I saw it as a kid and it like warped my brain was about the sl- was called the slave traders. And so that's based off a short story where basically aliens come and they say we will fix all of your problems, like the planet, money, energy, all that stuff. You just have to give us all your black people. Oh. And uh, it goes about as you'd expect. Yeah. So, but like, there's a there's a movie version of it that like totally ruined my brain when I was a kid. Uh, so that I mean, those are some other like kind of weird deep cut examples. Yes. Last question. Oh. Um, if you could go back in time and hand a modern day comic to your 12 year old self, Ooh. what would you give him or her? Oh my, a modern day comic. Hmm. Like something we've been talking about, or it could be something. Okay. Something you think that I need this, um, or I needed this. So today, when I was looking, and I was I was looking for pictures, and I found one. I was looking for about uh, Moon Girl, and like I like I said, on the list of Marvel superheroes that are the smartest, she is the top one. And so if I could, and like that made me tear up, and even the idea of saying that out loud is making me emotional. So like, if I could go back and bring that to me, and be like, you know, it's okay that you're smart and you're nerdy and you wear glasses. Uh, you know that that is all good like that's all amazing it's a good part of you and like you're gonna like this is what the future looks like I think that would really have meant something to past Ashley I really think that 12 year old me would have enjoyed that uh, that Power Man and Iron Fist run from uh, David Walker and uh, Sanford Green it was just so perfect for the time and it just showed we can be uh, superheroes we can be exciting mm-hmm. we can be positive not without, always sad. Not always sad. Not always bogged down by the world around us, but trying to lift the world around us yeah. up. So I, I think I would appreciate that as a kid. I think for me, my problem is I've been collecting comics since like 1976. So 12-year-old me already has a crap ton of this stuff. <laughs> 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 so, no, but, but I think that the, the thing that I would have, the thing that I would probably really love to read at 12 would have been my favorite comic series of all time, which is uh, um, 27 issues of a comic called Planetary. In which the writer, uh, Warren Ellis, is he pulls from every bit of uh, sort of speculative fiction narrative for a 27-issue series, and every issue touches on something else that's very familiar, and he, he does awesome with metaphor and allegory, and, and, and he just he digs real deep to kind of create one whole cohesive picture of a universe that involves Arthur Conan Doyle, that involves... Mm-hmm. Um, um, like, like, just everything. It involves uh, Stanley and Jack Kirby. It involves, he, he wraps up uh, Gene Roddenberry. There's all these things that get sucked into it along the way that, like, you, you find that we, when we're growing up reading comics and things, a lot of times we think that, like, you know, this comic book company is distinct from this comic book company or this character is distinct from that character. And we never consider that they're all related, they're all connected, they're all borrowing from some source material, right? And it's okay to go back and read, like, you don't you don't have to just read Marvel DC, you can read Jules Verne, you can read H.G. Wells, you can read Octavia Butler, and have it all connect to other things you've already read, right? 12-year-old me would have loved to know that I didn't have to live in these, like, pockets of nerddom, right? That they, right. That they kind of, like, It can be your whole life. Yeah. Definitely, yeah. It's yeah. terrifying. You know? Yeah, <laughs> I'm, changing, I'm changing my answer. Actually, twelve year old me would have wanted Saga because of the <laughs> because of the adult themes and the black characters. Don't read Saga around your kids. It's good. <laughs> you can't open up the first page around your kids. And the drawings are so pretty. It's like deceptively yeah. 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 Yes, gorgeous. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, the cover the cover of the first one was like breastfeeding. Right. And, like I, that was that was a crazy moment. I like that's the cover. Like, the first one was the actual birth. 
See, oh, that was again. the first page. Yeah. No, first no, page. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, maybe one of the collections. I remember it's like blue, and then there's like. So breastfeeding, actual birth. Okay. That's tame compared to what I'm thinking of that I won't lay out in detail right now. That's why I'm saying it was funny. Breastfeeding's fine. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, you the pages, and yes. you're like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I wasn't dark, ready. Though. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but in that. words I remember that Alana saying was, uh, I will, to paraphrase, I'm pooping. <laughs> but in all of that, there's black people in space. So, yep. yes, still Lots. on top. Awesome. <laughs> Entirely. Entirely. Yeah, for sure. Um, what No. I've never seen Red Dwarf. I know of I it, but I've never did. seen it. Um, so this okay, so this is two parts. One, I did watch Red Dwarf, but I was such a Doctor Who nerd that I had a problem with it because it was funny. Uh. My my uh, uh my blind spot with a lot of this stuff is whimsy. I hate it. Mm-hmm. I, I can't do I, I don't want I don't want them to try to make me laugh, right? I want to laugh because it's funny and I want my sci-fi to be serious. And Red Dwarf was good. It was it was apparently very entertaining. I never got it because Doctor Who was stupid but serious. Red Dwarf was serious but comical, right? You should you you will love it. You will love Red Dwarf. And to me, Doctor Who is so I've I've never Doctor Who is very intimidating to me because there's so many episodes and you can't even see all of the episodes because some got erased. And so like there's just all this history. Better than some got some got erased. Some got lost in a fire. Yeah. Yeah. So some got taped over with other episodes. That's what I'm I'm a completist, so I'm like I I can't see everything. Like I'm not even gonna start. But yeah, no, it looks really goofy, and I'm like, you think that serious? I went down. I went down that Doctor Who rabbit hole once upon a time. It depends on which Doctor you're watching. So like, Uh-oh. so <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is why Red Dwarf. So Red Dwarf had a, a, a short lifespan. There were there were not thirty seasons of Red Dwarf. There's only like a couple. Okay, so it's think, a right? just came back too. Oh, yeah, just, yeah. Back. just because this is what this is what the BBC does with their shows. This is what British <laughs> television does. They'll take a break. They don't even call them seasons. They call them series. Yep. They take breaks. Mm-hmm. And then when they feel like it, they'll come back whenever. I can't exist off of that type of non-commitment <laughs> from my television. I don't want cliffhangers and just nothing. I'm still waiting on Jekyll to come back. Netflix Sorry. ruined you. Yes, it did. I'm saying Netflix yes, it lost back. And it I felt, when you said that, I felt so bad because I'm definitely the person that waits for the trade paperbacks. I just can't. I just can't. <laughs> I have a problem with you people. I know, I'm sorry. Because you're, because, I'm sorry. Because you're lying to yourself. Yes, you're I know that. all like, trade waiting is not buying me other things you want. <laughs> I am a nerd with no ability for delayed self-gratification, right? And neither do you. None of you have the ability to delay your, your gratification. You can't do it. Okay, I haven't bought Skyrim yet, okay? Well, okay. <laughs> you need Skyrim? I have now every I format allowable. Also, <laughs> also guilty, I'm sorry. But okay, but back to the sci-fi thing. Back to the, back oh, yeah, to the Red Dwarf right. yep. thing. So I, I tried, based on May's suggestion, Red Dwarf a few years ago. <laughs> and I did enjoy it. But because, like, yeah, it disappeared for a while. Like, it kind of slipped my mind. Doctor Who, kind of the same thing. 2005, I got on the train just like everybody else when Eccleston jumped on and I tried to go backwards, didn't work because you know I was just encountered head first with this thing with a whisk and a plunger, and I'm like, uh-uh, here's, here's I got what you. Here's what you have to understand about old Doctor Who. Okay, old Doctor. So, so current Doctor Who, current Doctor Who, yes, is effectively a, a relatively entertaining person running around screaming like their hair's on fire. Mm-hmm. Right, plots will be wrapped up in an hour. We're just gonna wave this magical toothbrush in front of it, and everything will be fine. 
<laughs> Old Doctor Who is a cross between Columbo and Sherlock Holmes in space, right? <laughs> it might take it might take seven episodes to resolve whatever the plot is. It might take three. Yes. It might take nine. Old Doctor Who is written the way old comic book stories used to be written. Mm. You didn't know if your comic book story was going to be three issues, five issues, nine issues, twelve issues, fifteen issues to tell that entire story. It was written the way that writer intended it. Okay. Right? That's how long it will take. How long it takes when you go and say, "Mom, when is dinner? When it's ready?" Right. That's how old comic book stories were written, and that's how Doctor Who was written. So I got Mom over the Doctor Who. Mom never say 45 minutes. I got over my Doctor Who hesitation. I'm a fan now. But the reason why I was heading down that path is because the way that sci-fi shows hooked me, specifically black people in space, the way black uh, people in space sci-fi shows hooked me, LeVar Burton, on reading Rainbow, taking us on a tour of the Enterprise. That was wild. That's what got yeah. me. Because I'm a little kid, I'm watching, I'm like, oh my goodness, he does something else? Oh my goodness, he's on a spaceship? I need to watch this now. And then they show Worf busting down the door of his trailer. I just, I was in love from that point on. So when I think about the shows that were available to me around that time, on PBS, Doctor Who, which not very many black people. We had a lot of black people. And of course, The Whisk and the Plunger. And then you have Star Trek The Next Generation. I'm going to go check out Star Trek. Star Trek The Next Generation also had computer animated, like, like, Stuff like they they've done a lot. They come a long way, but they also have what's called a budget. That's true. Which Doctor Who not necessarily have. Doctor Who's entire existence was about like presenting an after like basically the Saturday morning show for kids. Yes. Right. So it had somewhat of a budget at the time, but it was largely like they were nerfed constantly mm -hmm. by what they were able to pull off with their money. And Doctor Who started in, like the early sixties. Yeah. Like by the time you got to the eighties, yeah, they had MTV music video levels of budget. Right, and you really didn't want them using that technology. It made it worse. <laughs> right, it's better that we stick to whisk and plunger because that we know. Yes, right, yes. that's okay. And the whisk and plunger has endured through time. So. My Star Trek problem was I remember being super excited. Avery Brooks got cast as Cisco. Uh, Space Jam. I was so thrilled. No, that was my problem because my only reference for Avery, Avery Brooks before this point was a man called Hawk. And I thought, <laughs> I thought Deep Space Nine was going to have a bad brother. This dude was going to be like, what? Bring the Klingons. Let's do this. What you got? You pulling up talking that smack? Oh, no. Somebody pull around my Mustang face. I thought my man was going to roll his face with Cutlass. I thought he was going to be... His dad was about that life. He was about that life. Oh, no. No, no. He was talking all slow and... He was all Shakespearean right now. It was it was weird. I was like, come on, man. Two things. Don't step to him, don't step to uh, Jake. Okay, wait a minute. He would not he would not stand for that. Two things. Jake was one. I love Jake. I had a crush on Jake. Stop. Oh. Oh. Don't do not talk about Jake like this. Everybody was okay. down bound down at the altar. Jake had the cross lessons. Anyway, everybody was bound down. I played tennis, okay? I want Everybody bowed down at the altar of Picard. Look, Cisco wasn't having that Picard. Hero worship. He was like, look, I know what this man is. I know what he did. I ain't about that. Okay? Yeah. Second thing. It took five seasons for Cisco to be that dude. Anyway, he also punched Q square in the jaw. Who was he doing? He punched him in the jaw and then did a D'Lo Brown head wobble at the man while he was on the <laughs> You're just telling me he was black. All you're telling me is he was black. Any black man would have done that. I did. <laughs> Worf, Worf would have been tossed aside. I know. Worf he would have been. Worf that was another worst. problem with Star Trek. Worf the worst was security the, guy. There was, was a problem. He was there. not great. It was bad. Mm -mm. Come on, man. Well, dude. Oh. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put the inclusivity bowl oh. on all of this. So when Picard went on, I call him Picard, right? When John, uh, when Patrick Stewart came yeah. on The View and invited 
uh, Whoopi Goldberg to be part of Picard. It was it was heartwarming. And that's the inclusion that we're talking about. It's like, okay, yeah, we got black people in space, but, you know, I had the opposite. You had the opposite? Yes. <laughs> Picard's difficult because, like, as much as I'm excited that we get this new Picard show, and I guess it's cool that Whippy could be on the next season, but I feel like every episode of Picard I see is some young person grabbing him by the hand and dragging him across the set. <laughs> <laughs> Grabbing him and then from behind people who obviously aren't him. It's true. It's true. That is a little distracting. He, he moves. He's John Luke 3 PO. It's like, true. It's, it's true. Good. But I did get the warm fuzzies. I was thinking. All this man is thinking. All all Patrick Stewart has to be thinking is the checks are clear. Yes. (laughs) The checks are clear. I I mean, I'm not super excited about that show just because, like, I'm like, I want to see something new. I haven't watched Mm. Discovery because Baby, but like, you know, I'm. Does your child sleep? Yeah, no, she's actually. Watch Discovery when she's asleep. That show is great. Yeah, when is she supposed to sleep? <laughs> not, not my problem. I'm, I'm solving one problem at a time. The audience I'm is turned against you, Terry. I'm just telling you when to watch it. That's why you don't get Space Dad, okay? This you don't is, understand. This is right. No, Space Dad was boring. Oh my God. I wanted, no, I, you know, something, a, new, a, a new story, though. Again, they kind of went back again, but whatever. You know, Star Trek yeah. fans just have to be patient and, and hope for the best. Hope for the best. When I met, I met Avery Brooks once oh my God. Uh, at a convention, did, and I was walking around the convention just taking, like, it was the first year in which I noticed that celebrities were charging money for, like, oh. photos, and, like, not like their headshots, but, like, before you take a picture yeah, with them, exactly. right, you yeah. know, and I was, I was fine, I think I would have been fine with people with rules and things, right, you make a rule, okay, it's a rule, I'll break it, but whatever. Um, the first thing I noticed at that particular convention was I saw Rowdy Roddy Piper, and I was like, oh my God, it's Roddy Roddy Piper. Hey, Mr. Piper, can I take a photo of you or whatever? And he was like, sure you can. And then he goes, it'll be $40. And I was like, what? So I stepped back. I don't have 40 bucks to give Roddy Piper. And then I saw Avery Brooks and I was like, oh man, I bet Avery Brooks won't charge me 40 bucks for a picture, you know. Oh, and I'm no. walking up to him no. and, and he's, he's busy just lecturing some dude. He's just Giving some guy a business who's I don't know what this dude was wrong about, but he's very wrong about it. Yep. And Avery Brooks wouldn't let it go. Okay. Right? And Avery Brooks is just like like on this guy. And I'm standing there with my phone, like, you know, and I'm like, hey, um, Mr. I'm trying to get his attention, you know? And the guy he's, he's the, the guy he's giving the business says, Well well, Mr. Brooks, I, I think this guy wants a picture with you, like trying to get out of the conversation. And Avery Brooks looks at me and goes, he can take as many pictures as he want. I got something I still got to say. <laughs> <laughs> now that's that energy you wanted. From yes. That's what you wanted. So I'm like, oh, oh, okay. Steve. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. When I met, I met LeVar Burton at um, a, an AL, uh, American Library Association conference, and I just like totally. It was like a community when like uh, Troy is just like blankly staring, oh, like yeah. shaking. Yeah. That was pretty much. And then I was like, I loved you in Roots. My mom made us watch it every Black History Month. And he was like, what? <laughs> that was, is, yeah, <laughs> man, that's hard. Yeah, no, I, I just was like, uh, I could have grown up in your block. It was our sister one time. I can't imagine nope. every year. My, yeah, Black History Month is pretty serious. We got coolie high. That's pretty good too. Um, any last comments? I think we're like down the wire. Any last comments you guys want to say? Anything else we don't plug? Uh, yeah, come to Third Coast Comics. It's 6443 North Shannon Road. Do you guys still do karaoke? No. Sad. Which? That's why I met Terry. Doing karaoke. For the record, we never did karaoke at Third Coast Comics. Oh, ever. Uh, that never happened. Sorry. 
in an alternate universe, perhaps, but not at my comic shop. I would never <laughs> do such a thing that might violate people's like trademarks and music rights and all that kind of thing in oh, public space. Uh, yeah, no, not me. I mean, do you know how much I'm going to have to edit this audio now? <laughs> <laughs> Ashley's a librarian at Grand Crossing. It was set up because I begged them on Twitter, yeah. and um, and then they got paid, and I I think they get the honorarium. So I mean, we can we can work out whatever we can. I would love to do it again, though. I love talking to these guys. It really is. It's like Ashley's effort to just even get this thing done. Yeah. So you know, shout out to Ashley. Thank you. I would be happy to get on the libraries. Yeah. yeah, you would be too. Same, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I, I think you know, especially when you're talking about. I mean, this is Afro-futuristic content, but you've covered a lot of things that you probably yeah. didn't intend to cover. And I just think of you know different audiences when you talk about being younger kids and not having you know your history taught to you to be able to bring that to different communities all over the place. I mean, it's great that it's here. We go farther south side, west side, farther north side, everywhere if you could. Yeah. I'll yeah. give you guys rights. You just gotta oh, give me gas money. Thank so. you. I do love the fact that we were able to do this on the south side because, you know, uh, I'm also south side, born and raised, but currently residing on the north side. And uh, working with Chicago Nerd Social Club, we always talk about wanting to get more coverage uh, on the south side of Chicago as well. So Absolutely. this is this is a joy to be here. So I only care that it was good to yell. Also, right. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Come back. I, I'm a south side. It's the north side of the south side. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That is true. Yeah. You can't really call this the south side. I would just number it. So <laughs> where I'm know. from, I would not have referred to this as the south side. No. <laughs> this is Chinatown. <laughs> this is Chinatown. Right. Yeah. Right. You're from yeah. the south of Mint. Yeah. <laughs> I'm from like 87th and, and, and Dan Ryan. So I totally, yeah. Yeah. Beverly. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no. Hey, this is from further south. That further is from south and east. They stopped naming streets where Amy's from. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Is it Hegwish? Hegwish is like the no, no. I'm, I'm from the east side of South Chicago, not Hegwish. Oh, yes. Avenue L? Yeah. J. Avenue J. G. Wow. G. <laughs> I didn't yeah. know that existed until very recently. And I was moms like, is were, this? Moms from Bush, they were really dancing on A7 and Kingston. Yeah. I used to live in Jeffrey Manor too, so I'm okay, all about that cheap gas know. life. I understand. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you guys so much for coming. Thank you. I'm Terry. This is Matt. I appreciate it. Thank you guys so much. Right on. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Oh, check out Lex and Matt's Excellent Adventure. That's my plug. That's the podcast. <laughs> I have not.